Once again, want to welcome each and every one who is here. Want to encourage you, each of you, to have a Bible handy as we go throughout our lesson today. I think you'll soon understand why you hear it so often said, follow along in your own Bible and confirm what you are hearing. Because we're going to talk this morning about the sermon that is preached daily by a certain individual, a certain entity, who is in direct opposition to God and to you and I, even though he would have us believe that he is our friend. We're going to talk about Satan's sermon and identify the fact that Satan's sermon, even though he uses different words at different times and talks about different things depending on different situations we might be in, it is always the same sermon. It all boils down to the same basic twisting of God's commandments for you and I. We're going to begin this morning by noticing a passage that is familiar to most of us in Genesis chapter 3, where we read here concerning Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden. We're going to read the first six verses of Genesis chapter 3. It says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent preaches his sermon here. He says to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. If you go to 1 John chapter 2 and You look at about verses 15 through 17 there, you'll see that John talks about all that is in the world. And he boils it down to three basic things that will ultimately lead a person to eternal condemnation. He says there's the lust of the eyes, there's the lust of the flesh, and there's the pride of life. And sometimes we try and isolate those three things, but really if you think about any sin that you might be tempted to commit, there's at least some element of each of those three things present in that temptation, as we see here with Eve's temptation at the very beginning of time. 
she saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. In thinking about her flesh, certainly it would be good and satisfying. And as Satan had said, well, you can be like God. And down through the course of history, it has been a common problem of humanity in which we crave power, don't we? We crave recognition. We crave really to be our own God. And so with those elements of the world, with those elements of temptation all working together, she partakes of that which God said not to touch or eat. And we know, of course, the consequences of that choice. Satan is very good at making his presentation seem like what we would really want. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is speaking here, and he says, What I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, referencing the other apostles of Christ, in the things of which they boast. He says, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then he says, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And so, as we think about some examples through the course of our lesson this morning, some different flavors of the same sermon that Satan preaches to us day in and day out, we're going to see how often these messages come to us from those that would present themselves as followers of God, those that would have our best interests at heart. But in all things, we must look at everything that we are taking in through our senses and filter that through the Word of God as a litmus test to see, is this good? Is this correct? Is this true? And so let's dive right in. Satan will often preach to us, you do not need to be baptized. If there's one twisting of Scripture that has led more people astray into thinking that they are truly in a relationship with God when they are not, I believe we could say it is this doctrine right here. Because as you turn on the television or you read in various religious books that are published or articles throughout the denominational world, you'll find almost consistently this same doctrine taught. You do not need to be baptized. Baptism is just something you can do later if, if it seems good to you as some kind of outward sign of the grace that you've already received inwardly, they will say. 
But what does the Bible say? Well, as we recognize that this is what Satan is preaching, I think it's very obvious what the truth of the matter really is. Let's think about the day of Pentecost for a minute. In Acts chapter 2, you have people here who've never heard the gospel. In fact, some of these individuals that are being preached to were the same Jews who were there before Pilate shouting, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children and our children's children. These are the same individuals hearing this gospel message for the very first time. Now, if you apply what the quote-unquote religious world often preaches, what Satan often preaches, that all we need to do is just believe. We just accept Jesus into our heart then you would expect that since this is the first time any of these people are hearing this message, that that's what Peter would tell them to do. Because they asked the question in verse 37, as you recall, which we don't have up on the screen, men and brethren, what shall we do in light of all these truths that are being presented? Peter could have just said, well, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him into your heart. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They were added to them as a result of their obedience to that message as they were baptized into Christ. Sometimes you will hear it taught that in verse 38, when it says, for the remission of sins, people will say, well, see, what Peter's really saying is you need to be baptized because... You've already received the remission of sins. When did that happen? You see? To follow through logically, it doesn't make any sense. As you study the entire book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, and what did the apostles do? The Acts of the Apostles is really the formal title of that book. What did they teach everywhere they went? Every example of conversion we find in that book Involves what? People being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It is an inescapable truth if we are going to be intellectually honest about what the Bible teaches. And it's so strange to me, this is just a personal note, I've always thought it so odd because it's almost like people present baptism as some like massive chore. Like, it's really hard to let somebody immerse you in water. (laughs) Oh, we can't do that. No, that's going to turn people off. That's so difficult. As if they've got to run a marathon in order to be saved. I could understand that if the Bible said, repent and then run a 5K in however long time, and it's some kind of really intense challenge, and you really got to condition your body and really do this great, impressive feat. Well, I can understand why people might say, well, we don't need to include that part. That's going to turn people away. 
I just don't understand it. You'll hear people go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And they'll really stress, by grace you have been saved. Notice, through faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. James 2, 26, faith without works is dead. So there's that to consider, which they don't. So they almost skip right past through faith and just read it as, for by grace you've been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And they'll say, not of works, and this baptism that you guys want us to engage in, that's clearly a work, it's an action, it's something you're doing. As if believing and confessing and repenting and these other things aren't things we would do. What is he saying here? He's just simply identifying the fact that none of us have done anything to earn the right to be saved. The gift of God is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Paul is simply identifying the fact that, look, none of you ever did anything to cause Christ to have to come and sacrifice himself for you. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But that doesn't mean that there's not something we're expected to do in response to this sacrifice that has been made. You notice in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Here again, the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, not putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, or by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, through faith in whose working? In the working of God. This is not something we do to earn salvation. This is something we do to allow God to operate upon our souls. We trust in his ability and power to do what he has said if we will heed his instructions. This is the same God who raised Christ from the dead. The result, verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has now made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Now notice one final passage on this point, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, beginning there, Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, what you find if you apply this verse, or these verses, I should say, to the common teaching in the denominational world, what are they preaching? Well, we're raised with Christ in newness of life, but then we got to go die so that we can be raised again to walk in the newness of life that we were already in because you don't need to be baptized. You see how that doesn't make any sense? 
to rise to newness of life, you first have to be made dead. And that's what repentance is. We're putting to death. We're turning away from the sin. Crucifying the flesh. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Another flavor of Satan's sermon that we will hear. That he will whisper to us on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Wednesday around 5 o'clock. You do not have to attend every service. That's just the invention of men. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read together here. Verse 23 beginning. The Hebrew writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. It's not like this is a new problem. As as the Hebrew writer wrote these words, it was already the manner of some then to forsake the assembling. But he says, don't do that, but exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. I don't know how we can read this passage of Scripture and come to the conclusion that, yeah, well, as long as we're here once a week, that's really all that matters. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Recognize that we have to hold fast our confession, that we are given this commission to not only preach the gospel to a lost and dying world, but to consider one another, to continue to stir up love and good works, to exhort each other. And I can't tell you how many times And this is just speaking personally, and maybe you all can relate or feel the same way, but when you get news that a brother or sister was somewhere else instead of here with the church when assembly was happening, it I don't know that there's anything that is more discouraging to me personally as as a preacher of the gospel. It is something that I wrestle with. Paul highlights something interesting in Ephesians 4, verse 29, as he's giving some general instructions about how a Christian is to live and behave. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, and he says, for necessary edification. We need edification. We need build up because this world wants nothing but to tear us down. And to see our faith shattered. Where else would we rather be than with the church? You know, you go back and you read in Acts chapter 2 and, you know, sometimes we think, well, 
That's a lot. Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night, good grief. How am I supposed to keep up with that? And you go back and you read about the early church, and they were together daily. <laughs> you know, we, we complain when it's a gospel meeting week, as we're about to have next week, and every night, well, i got things to do. You know, we look forward to vacations, and we look forward to these things that we set aside a week or two weeks, and we can't wait. And that's exactly the kind of excitement that we should have when such an opportunity, what we get to be with the saints for a whole week every day, that's awesome. We get to hear lessons every day this week. We get to build each other up every day. What a great week that's going to be. How encouraged will I be? How much stronger will my faith be? How much more motivated will I be to share the gospel with others than I ever have been? We need to think about our responsibility towards the elders who have set aside these times. We have instructions in the Word of God about submitting to their rule. Not that they are making the rules as far as our religion. We know Christ is the head of the church, but they are tasked with being overseers for the flock, which watching out for the souls of the saints here in this place or wherever it might be. Obey those, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Everything that is decided as far as the classes that are taught, the times we get together, the special efforts that are put forth in meetings and other types of things, it is all with the intention of What is best for these souls here in this place? What can we do to make sure that they stay on that right path? First Corinthians 15 and verse 58. We read here, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable. Notice, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? Or are we just seeking to do the bare minimum, if you will? We just boil everything down to as uh, base few commands as we possibly can and say, well, as long as we just check off these few things, then we're good. And then we can go about and do whatever we want the rest of the time. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? Another flavor of Satan's sermon. He will tell us, you will not get caught. Go ahead and do this just this one time. You've dotted all of your I's and crossed all of your T's. You've thought through all the potential scenarios of how someone might find out about what you're about to do. So don't worry about it because you're smart and you're talented and you've got this all squared away. So you go ahead and you indulge yourself just a little, just this one time. 
Nobody will find out. You will not get caught. And how many people, like the silly fish swimming in the pond and sees that shiny lure there, ah, that looks so good, and they get hooked. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, it tells us here that some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. In other words, we can look around the world, we can see certain people and look at the things they're doing and say, well, clearly that guy is not doing what God wants him to do. Very evidently in rebellion. But then he says, those of some men follow later. And likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. Those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Some people might go successfully through their whole lives keeping some sinful activity of theirs secret from the world. But you know who they're not keeping it secret from? You're not fooling God. Back in Ecclesiastes 12, as Solomon concludes his book of wisdom, his search for purpose and meaning in the lives we live here under the sun, He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you have a secret this morning? Recognize that it's not so secret after all. I think about Jonah. Jonah makes me laugh, but uh, there's serious lessons for us to draw from the book of Jonah. Right off the bat, in chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them from the presence of the Lord. How far did Jonah get? We do the same thing sometimes, don't we? We, we point the finger at Jonah and say, what a silly individual, thinking he could just get on a ship and go the opposite direction, and God wouldn't know anything about it. God would just be like, where'd Jonah go? Well, I don't know, I guess I'll find somebody else to do the job. God knew exactly where he was. And he sent the storm, and the people on the boat, what's going on? Clearly God is upset about something, this is not natural, this... Uh, wherever they were, and the the time of the year, you know, you sail on a ship, you learn when good weather is expected and bad weather likewise, and they're thinking, this is out of the ordinary, what's going on here? And they finally get Jonah to confess what he'd done. So they throw him overboard. (laughs) There's so many interesting parallels in that story, isn't it? What happens to us when we try and flee from the presence of the Lord? We usually get thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish of one sort or another. 
Hebrews 4 and verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, the word naked there should bring a sense of a blushing when we think about that word and the idea of being unclothed. We understand that we are to be modest and to cover ourselves and our nakedness is only to be seen by our spouses, etc. What an interesting thought to stop and think that everything we do, it, it is as if we are naked in the eyes of God. There's nothing that we're hiding. There's no pockets to stuff something into. Everything is laid bare. But yet Satan wants us to believe the opposite. Satan will preach to us and say, you do not need to worry about anyone but yourself. You know, after all, there in Philippians chapter 2, it says that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So see, the Bible right there tells you, you don't need to be bothered by what anybody else is dealing with or working through in their lives. You just focus on yourself. Now, obviously, we know that we have to be serious about our own salvation, hence that particular verse, hence other instruction throughout Scripture. I think about Matthew 7, where he talks about how we can't go and correct someone else if we've got a bigger problem ourselves, to paraphrase. But Christianity is not all about me. In fact, that's the problem to begin with. That's why we need salvation, because we go through life and we only concern ourselves with me and what do I want, and I don't care what God has said about this or that. I'm going to do what sounds good to me, and so we break God's commandments. We are selfish in our thinking. And once we obey the gospel, we we resort right back to the same thing, even though we convince ourselves that, no, we're, we're trying to do good now. But yet, really, it's the same problem in a sense. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James gives a, an interesting definition of what religion is. Now, he certainly highlights how that part of that is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's a personal responsibility that we have. But also, and before he gets to the second part, notice he says that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. The first thing he stresses is others who are having trouble in life. What are we doing for them? In what ways are we seeking opportunity to build them up or help them through whatever situation they might be dealing with? In John 13 and verse 35, Jesus made a very simple statement. He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. See, it's more than just me. I always think about Matthew chapter 25 because here we see this scene of judgment described. Jesus is on his throne and the nations are brought before him and they are separated 
As it describes there, a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And as he begins to speak to the sheep, he goes through all these scenarios where these people have done these very helpful things to him. He says, I was in prison and you came and visited me. I was sick and you ministered to me and and all these different things. And in verse 37, the righteous answer, and they say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I just find it so interesting that in this picture that is painted of judgment, there's nothing that Jesus says about, well, you did not keep this commandment or that commandment. You you personally did not do this thing or that thing. It's not about the, the self-reflective part of what we are expected to do as Christians. It's all about what did you do for other people? What did you do for your neighbor? What did you do for your brother or sister? What did you do for the stranger that you met along the way? These are the things that are highlighted as what it's all about. And it makes you pause and think about your own self and your own life. And do I really concern myself with those things or am I too wrapped up in what I'm doing? Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the message that Christ would preach to us. Satan will tell us, you will not go to hell. Hell is one of those topics that you're hard-pressed to hear a sermon on if you're watching TV or you're going to some kind of mainstream outlet because, well, hell turns people off. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear about that. Uh, We just want to hear about how I can be a better me and how God wants to bless me with riches and prestige and all these types of things. But yet the Bible has much to say about the reality of hell and the reality of God's judgment against those who reject him. People will say, well, God's just so loving. I I can't imagine that he would ever send anybody to such a terrible place. Well, yeah, and that's why he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. God is love, but God is also a God of justice. And if we reject his effort to save us, then we will be separated from him. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. 
here describing Jesus' return at the end of time. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the reality. Matthew 18. This is why the language that Jesus employs here is so seemingly drastic. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it away from you. That seems awfully harsh, Christ. Well, yeah, but we're dealing with life and death here. We're dealing with eternity. We're dealing with your soul's salvation. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes again to be cast into hell fire. There is nothing on this earth, nothing, I don't care if it's your favorite thing to do, I don't care if you feel that you're blessed with some kind of talent in whatever it is, there is nothing that is worth you losing your soul over because you won't give it up. Nothing. Back in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, notice with me here, verse 14. Again, when I say to the wicked, God is speaking. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he's committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right, and he shall surely live. Yet, verse 17 continuing, the children of your people say, well, the Lord, uh, his way is not fair. How's that not fair? (laughs) God is showing you mercy when you don't deserve it. Yet, Well, the Lord's not fair. That's so harsh to send people away. Eternal punishment. But it is their way which is not fair. To expect God to just sweep all their continued sins under the rug as if God should just act that there is no penalty for disobeying his commands, despite his mercy. Verse 18, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live. Yet again, you say the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. Finally this morning, Satan will preach to us and he will say, you do not need to do that today. And we could interject various different things into 
the word that, whether it's being baptized, whether it's repenting of something that is amiss, whether it's going and doing that thing that you've known you need to do for however long and you've just put it off, Satan will tell us day after day, you don't need today to worry about that. That's the thing for tomorrow. The problem being, of course, that the same thing is said every day and the same lie is bought into every day and we never get to tomorrow. We're just stuck in this perpetual putting off of what God tells us is the most important In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus speaks a parable to those that are around him. And he says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He said, Well, I'll do this. I'll I'll pull down my barns, and then I'll build greater, and I will store all of my crops and my goods, and say to my soul, So you have many good things laid up for many years. So take your ease, and eat and drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? The next verse, Jesus highlights, So it is for the one who is not rich toward God, but rich towards the things of this world. We get so caught up in this life as though this life is the goal of everything. When in fact, this is just such a brief moment in our existence. In James 4 and verse 13, James says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there buying and selling, making a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we shall live and do this or that. But now you are boasting in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Just the other morning, Carla was on her way to work up 71, and all of a sudden the traffic was at a standstill, and flames are visible up in the distance, rising high into the air and black smoke rolling, and here a semi had caught fire and exploded, and we go through life just thinking, oh, today's going to be like every other day we've ever had, nothing going wrong, no problems, certainly not going to be the end of my time. I've got years yet to live. We always think that it's going to happen to somebody else. That would never happen to me. That's just the kind of thing you read about on the, or see on the TV or read about in the newspapers, right? It's always somebody else, never us. She was running late that morning actually, by a few minutes, and she made the comment, if I'd been on time, I probably would have been about where that fire was in proximity. 
Psalm 119, verse 59, the psalmist says, I thought about my ways, and I turned my feet to your testimonies, and I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. I think about Acts 22 and 16, where then Saul was before Ananias, and Ananias was explaining to him all the things that he'd just recently experienced with seeing Christ on the road to Damascus and being blinded by his glory and led by the hand to the city. He explained to him that God had chosen him to be his apostle. And he asked a very important question in verse 16 of Acts 22, where Paul is recounting these events. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why are you waiting this morning? To be baptized? To turn your life around? You probably heard it said before, not from somebody else, probably from me. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Doesn't matter what you've done up to this point. Today can be a new beginning. But we got to stop listening to that deceptive preacher. Who wants us to think otherwise? You know, as we had looked at Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the lesson, I thought it would be appropriate for us to notice the passage in Luke chapter 4 as we conclude. Because here we find a very similar thing unfolding where instead of Eve, now Christ is before Satan and being tempted by him. And Satan appeals to all those same three things that we saw presented to Eve. The lust of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life. Chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward when they had ended he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will but worship before me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered and said again, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in another place, In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Unlike Eve, Jesus overcame those temptations. And how did he do so? He he did so with the word of God. It is written. That is the power he appealed to each and every time. Despite Satan's attempt to take that same word and twist it and give it another meaning and to misapply it so as to cause him to do the wrong thing. And so has been our effort this morning to untwist that which Satan has twisted and see what God has truly said. Galatians 4 and verse 16, as Paul wrote to his audience there, rebuking many of the things that they were doing. He says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Sometimes that's people's reaction when we try and untwist what has been twisted and we try and show them the plain truth of Scripture. They they get mad because, well, that goes against what I've always heard or what I feel is right. But do we really have a reason to be angry with one who would show us the truth? I would encourage each of us this morning, if you are wrestling with your own actions, your own behaviors versus what you know to be the truth, that you would submit to God and trust in Him and allow Him to heal you, and give you the strength to be victorious against the wiles of the devil and lead you to home eternal with him. If there's anyone here this morning who needs to make a change and we can assist you in making that change, we would be thrilled to do so. If there's any way that we can help you at all in regards to your obedience to the Son of God, we'd ask that you'd make it, uh, make your way up to the front at this time while we stand and sing the song that our brother has chosen.